Hey team, welcome back and welcome to part three in our special series on corporate transitions. In this space, we talk about dental transitions and how to navigate the sometimes messy path of practice ownership. And as we have discussed, sometimes ownership leads to a transition that isn't to a private buyer. How do those work? Why would I do it? And why wouldn't I? In this special four-part series, we will tackle the corporate sale and all the things you need to know to approach those in an educated and, and armed with the facts. So welcome to part three of our corporate transition series. Quick recap of what we've covered thus far. On part one, we covered some big questions, including why and are you ready? What questions to consider to ensure that you are prepared for this important process? In part two, we discussed the basics of the deal, including structure, key players, and key terms to know. If you missed either one of those, stop, go back, listen, and then catch back up. Today, we're going to move on and discuss the elusive EBITDA value. And most importantly, we're going to really focus in on how to maximize the value from your practice and the ultimate value you receive if you're considering a corporate transition. Now, this is by far the most discussed component of these deals. The value is what fuels all the rumors. And so before we begin today, I want to ask my lovely co-host here to give us a quick walkthrough of the basic terminology that we're going to use throughout this process. I know we touched on this on part two, but I think it's always worth a quick refresher. So when we talk about value today, we're talking really about EBITDA, right? Because we're talking about that EBITDA that's going to be applied to a multiple So Charles, in the most basic sense, like, you know, 20 second elevator answer here, what is your EBITDA? What does it mean? And is this a new term? Great to see you, Christy. Hi. Brett, always great to see you as well. Yeah, the the elevator pitch on what EBITDA is, is just simply the profitability of the business. So the biggest example is a million dollar business and there's 50% overhead. So the overhead is defined as I'm not paying the doctor, I'm not paying the associate, all payroll taxes, interest, uh, depreciation, amortization, it's all the crap. And so the thing that people need to understand is it's the profitability that equals your EBITDA. But when you're calculating the value of your business, then there's an EBITDA and there's an EBITDA after paying the doctors to do the work. And so, you know, in the example I always use is like, if you had a surgery practice and it was a million dollar practice, 50% overhead, you're like, hey, my EBITDA is 500 grand. Your EBITDA is not 500 grand. Your EBITDA is 500 grand, but somebody still has to do the work. In a surgery practice, you would have to pay someone as much as 40% to do the work. So you have an EBITDA, yes, of 500,000 before the doctor, but after the doctor, you may only have a $100,000 EBITDA. So even if you get this crazy multiple of eight, nine, whatever that may be, you have to understand that's still not attractive for the surgery practice of the million dollars to even sell. So there's these calculations that have to be done that make sense. And so obviously the lower the overhead, the higher the value. And that's the simple version to any any business itself. Absolutely. So that is super helpful. So keep that in mind as we kind of work through this. Now, what we will kind of focus on here, we'll touch on financially kind of how we're going to improve that value. But I think it's important to start first and talk about what improves the value overall that maybe isn't showing up on your profit and loss, right? Because I think that's important to understand is that 
in these deals, there's more than just the numbers that are showing up on your financials. There's a lot of pieces of these deals that make sense. So Charles, what I'm wanting to do is I'm wanting to talk about what buyers are looking for. I want to kind of do a little rapid fire here. So I want to talk to you. I'm going to kind of give you a few things and I want you to give us kind of a short kind of summary of why these things matter and what buyers are looking for in this area. So first, let's talk about financially, right? What are buyers looking for when we talk about our collections overall? Okay, I'm going to try to get 60 to 90 seconds on each of these five or six questions you're going to ask. Good luck. That's not your strong suit. I know, I know. Cut me off. Cut me off. Okay. So the first thing you're going to look for, a business is going to look for is consistency. Any buyer wants to see consistency. So if you're buying a business, again, it's a million dollar business, million in 2019, million in 20, million 21, the consistency is there. So they love that from a buyer perspective, the bank private equity so they also love to see the growth. So if I got a practice that's consistently growing, million, million one, million two, that is certainly advantageous. For my orthodontist, they love to see production growth. Your consistency may be million, million fifty, million one collections, but man, if I can see it or the bank can see that your production is actually, you know, at a million five because you just had this major uptick. That's exciting for them. So consistency with growth and looking at the internal mechanisms to see what's causing it to grow. Okay. That's consistency of financials. Let's talk about just financials overall, right? Clearly clean or messy and who does them and how they look kind of on paper, QuickBooks, uh, you know, what do they like to see when they look at your financials that you're producing monthly? Let me tell you what they don't like, <laughs> because this is super common. Um, my spouse is doing, you know, some entries. I work with this bookkeeper. Then the accountant cleans it up and we clean those up once a year. If that's you, you need to understand that you have a mess. They are looking for clean financial statements that have all of these things broken out, literally calculating all of these discretionaries and perks and interest and all these addbacks tied to bank accounts, tied to you know, having a clean balance sheet, they want to see that on a monthly basis. So they want professional accounting, dental specific books done on a monthly basis. So that's super important because in the end, you're an owner and you need to be controlling those numbers. If they're investing in you, they don't have control or you don't have control over they even see what they're buying. It makes them a little nervous and hesitant. And you're not as attractive. So they don't want to see just a yellow pad of paper with your profit and loss that you give to your accountant once a year to keep create some financials. That's not good. It's Christy is when you value businesses, I like how we don't give them a quote on their valuation until we see that they're either clean or a mess. Mess, we charge more to clean up the mess. So so yes, yellow sheets of paper are not ideal when you're trying to sell your business for multi-millions of dollars. Yeah. So keep in mind, these are all things that are helping make your business more valuable. What is a buyer looking for to say, this is the type of practice that we want to kind of add to our portfolio. So, okay, let's talk about specialty types and associates, right? So it's kind of like two, but they kind of go together there. So what's our pitch there? First thing, and, and Brett's really good about this because Brett works with a lot of the, of the buyers. They want to see that if we do have associates, which typically you would, 
in these private equity events, that these associates have reasonable compensations. Maybe it's a GP that's at 30%. Maybe it's an orthodontist that's at 1200 a day or something like that. They want to see that they have associate agreements with non-competes in place and not just some handshake deal that there's not an associate agreement. So that's protecting the investor that they don't just buy the practice two or three associates just walk you know, out the door. So the associate agreements is definitely something they're going to want to look at. From a specialty standpoint, typically what's most attractive to these private equity ESO groups is the GP space and the orthodontic space. Those are one and two. Obviously, pedo comes into the place. And, you know, the other specialties definitely come in. It's just that's more attractive to these groups because they have control. They can market directly to the patients, which makes sense. An endodontist can't, quote unquote, market to patients. So that's obviously the most risk you'll see, you know, in this space. Why would they take over an endodontic practice that they can't control the referrals? So regardless of kind of where you are, you need to understand what specialty and what's marketing. You can't just see emails that get blasted and say this, this, and this. Oh, that's going to make my practice this value. That's just not how it works. So you need to look at that. And one last thing I just want to hit on, on the clean financials I just hit. So ideally, I talk about what they don't want to see, what they would love to see. And from a, a financial statement, they want to see your direct costs. Remember, they're managing essentially three areas, direct cost employees. I want to see clean financials that break down hygienist assistance and front desk. I want to see clean financials that break out lab costs. And so I can see lab one and two, my primary resources, and maybe I've got a lab tech or maybe I've got aligners in that bucket. I want separate categories so I could manage that part of the business. And I want to see my supply category, the straight line supplies and pull out my implant type costs. And that's how essentially, you know, if you don't have that type of accounting, I really want to challenge you because I don't think that this makes sense to run a business without having good key metrics. The, the private equity DSO. They're looking at your business and they're going to fix this part. Why wouldn't you fix this part of your business now? Create a higher cash flow, higher margin for yourself that gives you so many more opportunities, private equity or not. You need to be very conscious and very focused on running that business. Yep, absolutely. And so that, and we're definitely going to touch on maximizing profitability and kind of maximizing that here in a moment. Okay. So one more piece we want to touch on before I'm going to shift over. I'm going to talk to Brett about what buyers are looking for in a doctor partner. But before we go there, size, locations, room to grow, chairs, kind of what are buyers looking for when they look at kind of the size of your practice, not necessarily collection level, but more actual kind of footprint and space, a number of locations. Yeah. And I know Brett will comment here, but let me give you the high level is they don't want small. I had a practice we were working with in, in Waco. It was a four chair practice. It was an unbelievable practice, like $2 million practice with 50% overhead. So ideally it looks amazing, but it was a super doctor that did everything, nothing they could refer out. Everything was super organized and clean. But the problem, you know, was it just space? How are they really going to grow that? So space definitely matters. And I know that location, not just like, you know, Frisco or Plano, but just the geographic area of the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, the geographic area of Denver. Those things absolutely matter compared to the, you know, rule, you know, McAllen, Texas, all Medicaid practice. That is not attractive for a lot of these groups because it has to do with just finding people to work in those spaces. So, Brett, I know that's really a lot when you're looking at partners that fit. What are the things that I leave off there? Yeah, room to grow, which you mentioned, is very important. The practices don't need to be gigantic, but a lot of times when a buyer is looking to invest in you and invest into a practice, what else could we do here? 
is there additional room for extra chairs or are there more ops? Is there an inefficient use of space somewhere? Because once I put my marketing engine, my big DSO marketing engine behind this practice and we get more patients coming in and we get more interest, is there a place to put them? Certain DSOs only buy practices of certain sizes and certain DSOs only buy practices that have that room to grow. One, we want to make you as efficient as possible with what you have, but it is nice to have some ancillary opportunities to grow that practice, even inside those four walls. Or a lot of our guys own buildings that they're in, but they only operate in like 40% of it and lease the other part out. That's another interesting opportunity for a buyer saying, hey, we could actually lease more space next door to grow this business and utilize these marketing tools that we have. Yep, absolutely. They want the upside, right? They want to have some ability to do more with what you're doing, right? It's a business. Okay, so let's shift a little bit, Brett. I want you to focus in and I want to talk about kind of same concept. What are buyers looking for from their doctor partner, right? Because they truly do look at these individuals who are selling their practices as future partners. So what are they looking for from qualities, work back willingness, kind of just future partnership type of person and qualities? So just like they want to know financially what they're buying in a practice, what am I buying? Looking at the financials like Charles talked about, all that stuff needs to be laid out because they want to know what they're buying. Production, the collections, the cost, the direct cost, how all that stuff kind of filters out. They want to know what they're buying. They also want to know what they're buying and when it comes to their partner. How is he or she going to behave in this relationship? And so in some ways, it's even more important than the actual practice because they're looking at how can this practice behave over the next five to 10 years? And a lot of that is dependent on the primary doctor partner. And so like, what's the work back willingness? In general, are you excited as a doctor to partner with these people or are you doing it kind of out of defiance because you feel like you have to? Even if it's the latter, we should probably promote the former. So what is your willingness to partner? Are you willing to work back a few years? How much time are you willing to give them to work? And what is your willingness to improve things? If they do things a certain way and you do things a certain way and their way can actually help grow the profitability of the practice, Are you going to hold on to the old things and become problematic when it comes to improving the practice? Or are you willing to say, hey, look, we all win when this practice improves its efficiencies or we all win when this practice becomes more profitable. Are you willing to do that? I know a lot of the people on the podcast listening have had a lot of success doing the things the way that they're doing them now. In some cases, there are little nuanced ways that the practice can improve using the resources of the partner. Nobody's going to push that on you necessarily, but are you willing to listen and to have conversations about that? Are you excited for the partnership? Do you understand your practice? Do you have any idea what happens inside those four walls or you just kind of show up, play the music and go home? It helps to understand the practice, understand the operations to some degree inside the practice. Like, are you requiring a fair compensation arrangement? Do you want to be paid a bunch? Do you want to be paid way too little? All of these things affect the value of the practice. Just are your compensation preferences reasonable? And, you know, as far as the doctor's concerned, as far as are the associates willing to work as well? How dependent are you on referrals? This is kind of a practice thing, but it also comes down to the doctor and how much he hustles the referrals, especially like on the specialty side. So are you very dependent on referrals? Are you willing to hustle referrals? And then finally, in terms of the grander scheme, what is your influence in the area? Do you have influence with other doctors of other specialties in the area that could possibly help them grow their company inside that geographic region? Yes. So, Brett, I, I 100% agree. And I, I think that, you know, as we prep these clients, knowing how they're going to be interviewed, we've seen these interviews and we've literally seen some of these sellers that say, quote unquote, they're ready, but they, after they do the interview, their quote unquote partner 
doesn't want to become their partner because they're not committed. And so what we're trying to do is not waste people's time. I mean, that would just simply waste a ton of your time, our time, and their time as well. So you need to know how this process is going to work. Honestly, if we can pull out that your financial plan is ready, that this will be a life-changing event for you. Yes, all these three, five-year kind of commitments and work back. You understand your business. You know what you're getting yourself into. And all those things are, are quote-unquote blessed. You need to nail the interview. You need to be prepared. And so that way, the partner or maybe multiple partners that, you know, we're having you interview with, there can be a little bit of a fight over you. I mean, that's how you want it. You, you want there to be multiple kind of offers and so that the negotiation can go to your advantage. Not all going to be about, you know, the actual dollar itself. You definitely want to partner with the right group and who you feel better with. And Christy, I know that we've seen this a lot on just the private sales that we've done. Super important. We've watched people sell for less because they were connected more with that buyer. So it could be a 28-year-old buyer or it could be a investment group out of Chicago. So it's important just to understand that when that interview comes, you need to know what you're getting yourself into and you need to interview them just as much as they're interviewing you. Yeah, I completely agree. And you know, I think what's interesting, and Brett, you recall this from our webinar we did with the buyer group, we're talking today about maximizing value. They know that value is important, but I just always find it interesting to hear that, you know, they in that interview, if they hear all that that seller is focused on is what's my multiple going to be? How do I get the multiple higher? That kind of creates a little bit of disinterest in them, right? Because if they know, just like we know, that that big check you get, right, isn't going to have as much allure a year after you've sold. And so, you know, clearly we know value is important. We know price is important. We know that's why this whole part of the series is dedicated to talking about how to maximize that. But just keep in mind, there's a financial value. And then there's this other non-financial value that we're kind of focusing in here that makes that financial value more. And so those two things are very interrelated. Yeah, I love that concept of nailing the interview. You know, there's a financial interview, which is basically their review of your financial statements and how the practice has performed on paper. But equally as important is you know, your interview with them. And we're going to get into this a little bit more, but like a good exercise is always to put yourself in the shoes of the buyer. And what do you think you'd want to hear from a prospective seller on nailing that interview? A partner in this situation, just like it is on the private side, just like it was when you bought your practice, a partner is more than someone who you just have their bank account to send a deposit to. Okay. And so if we start this conversation, like I really want this two and a half million dollars and I really don't like being a dentist anymore. That's just kind of, we're setting ourselves up for some failure. And just like you wouldn't want to hear that from an associate buying into your practice now. So nailing that interview, showing that you are willing to partner and help grow this enterprise, because it's going to benefit you too, personally, that's extremely important. And we do a lot of coaching. A lot of our job is coaching the clients on how to get through these interviews, what to expect, what to expect to hear from them, what you should be expecting to know. And what are the right answers? And, you know, there's not many questions that we get surprised by, by these buyers. You just need somebody in your corner coaching you along the way. And I think we do a pretty good job of that. Completely agree. Yep. So that's what buyers are looking for, right? Both in the practice and in their partner doctor. If we think that we're ready and we think this is the route that we want to go, how do we make ourselves more valuable, right? If I'm listening to this podcast and I have a practice got my financial plan set up, listened to part one and part two. And I feel like I know all of the answers to those questions. And now I'm trying to see how do I maximize my value in the short term, right? We'll talk about long term here in a minute. 
How do I do that? I think the easy answer is like, well, let's maximize collections. Brett, what are some ways that we do that? Or Charles, whoever you know feels like that they can have this. Brett, yeah. So there's a couple of ways we can talk about collections. I'm going to start on I'm going to start on the profitability side, which is regarding overhead and overhead and collections. Obviously, are the two main pieces of profitability. So one thing is there's a lot of low hanging fruit on the overhead side. Typically, expenses. There's a lot of stuff if you just paid attention to it. There's a lot of things that you can trim off of there. And so if you're thinking about selling your practice or partnering with one of these groups and you're going to get a six times multiple, every dollar that you save that you don't spend frivolously or otherwise is going to be worth six in your total practice value. So don't let them fix your overhead before they pay you. Fix your overhead first so you receive the value of that fixed overhead. By fixed, I mean improved overhead after they purchase you. Because when they partner with you or when you are partnered with, they are going to see some of that low-hanging fruit and they're going to take care of it with their solution. So we have solutions. Elite Dental Alliance is a great way to do that. Shameless plug here maybe, but you know we're here to help you get all of that stuff under control. I mean, if we can lower your overhead by $100,000 without you seeing another patient, which we do all of the time, times six, that's $600,000. I mean, I don't know what you know, money's worth different things to everybody, but $600,000 for really doing nothing other than making your practice more efficient is a pretty good value. So number one, let's let's lower that overhead by paying attention to your expenses. I know a lot of our doctors kind of like try to get out of the weeds on that stuff and they let their office managers kind of handle that. It's probably worth having a conversation at least monthly about where's all this money going? What are we spending this stuff on? Do we really need this still? Oh wait, this software we actually haven't used in three years and nobody here even knows how to use it anyway. Because the person who signed up for it doesn't even work here. Pay attention to those things. Look through your general ledger. Talk to your cane waters planner. Talk to your talk to your accountant. Like, what are all these expenses? If you don't know what these expenses are, chances are they might not be necessary. So pay attention to your expenses on that side. Pay attention to your revenue stream. Pay attention to your insurance reimbursements. A lot of times these larger DSOs are going to get better or improved insurance reimbursements by partnering with you. But that doesn't mean you can't do that ahead of time. So, you know, the more you're getting paid on the same patient, on the same procedure, you can negotiate with the insurance companies every two years. I recommend that you do that if you haven't done it in 15 years. So, and then review kind of like this. We've always done it this way process with Ben. We've always used Carl to buy this and he's the nicest guy in the world. And we go fishing three times a year. Well, Carl's been charging you 500% of retail for the last five years. So maybe we can have a conversation with Carl to get that down because now we're talking about your money, and this is real money, and it's your real money times four, five, six, seven, whatever it is, which really, really matters. And so overhead reduction, you doing it before them doing it, is going to get you a lot more value. Pay attention to your revenue streams in terms of insurance reimbursements. Review your dang fee schedules. You know, sometimes people get into these things where they haven't reviewed their fee schedules in 10 years, and you're selling stuff for the same price you're selling from 10 years ago. Your supply, I promise you, your suppliers have given you fee increases and the patients are just are used to it. Most patients don't even know what they're paying, don't know the cost of these things anyway. And so just get all that stuff in line, overhead and revenue. If you get that stuff in line ahead of time, these are not huge fixes that take years to do. You can review, start reviewing these things now with Elite Dental Alliance, with that group or with whomever, but just paying attention to those expenses and those revenue streams is, is critical right now. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I love this concept because this is going to matter to you, whether you sell to a corporate transition or whether you transition ever. And all of you listening are going to have to transition at some point. And so if we can make these changes 
to your collections and increase the amount that's coming in if you already feel like you have your expenses in line or clearly just looking at your GL. We joke about this, but some people never look at their profit and loss. They never look at what they're spending. If we can reduce that, not only is it going to help your value, it's going to help the money that's coming into your pockets over the next two to three to four to however long it's going to take you to transition, which is only going to help your financial plan and give you that flexibility to transition how you want when you're ready to do it. I have seen so many on the private side and on the corporate side, but on the private side where they're just people who have no idea what's in their financials and they don't know where their money's going. And I can tell you as a patient, and I can tell you from a transition and valuation standpoint that like like you mentioned on that fee schedule and increasing it, a patient is not going to understand if you raise your fee schedule by the incremental amount each year that I know that Kane Waters proposes and, and others in the industry. And so I just feel like this is something that you have to look at it from a business perspective and say, how do I in- continue to increase and make my business better? Because whether now in a corporate transition or in a private transition two years from now, you are going to be better off and have a better asset to kind of help you through the process. Charles, anything you want to add there? Yeah, just a couple of comments that Brett made. And I think this is this is perfect. We, we're all in this role. It's just having a coach, you know, in your corner. So that coach could be looking at your financial statements and looking inside the general ledger, making sure that you've got all these right chart of accounts and to hold you accountable that these certain costs are out of line. So that's definitely a coach in your corner. The coach in, in your corner is someone who's removing the emotions from the decision making. And that's what I honestly, that's the thing I love the most about this career that, you know, all of us are in. So we do, we tell people without emotion, this is your critical path. And so the fees, oh my God, I mean, you think, I, I mean, I just went to my periodontist to get my cleaning done. Do you think I'm like, what well, was 142 last time? And this time it's 147. Did it go up? Nobody does that. The only person who's thinking about that $7, $10 increase is the doctor. So, you know, we're not shy on charging appropriate, you know, fees for what we do. We're good at what we do. We charge that fee and, you know, we want you to do the same. And I'd love to just the independent review of these practices and seeing that when there's certain parts of the practice, it could be case acceptance. It could be new patient flow. It could be the hygiene department and the perio diagnosis. It could be the return on investment from each individual hygiene, whatever that is, the numbers, if they're put in the right place, can tell the advisor what is wrong. And then once you know what is wrong, then you bring that consultant specifically to that problem to fix it. Okay. And so most of these doctors will just look at their numbers maybe once a year. It's like, oh, I'm just, I don't really look at my numbers kind of guy. Well, if you don't look at your numbers kind of guy, then more than likely you are leaving two, three, four, five percent literally on the table. And for a two million dollar practice, like Brett said, it's a hundred grand. And a hundred grand multiplied times a six or seven is a big number. Or it's even from a private sale, it's going to add value. Or it just adds money, you know, to your cash flow, as, as Christy said. So it is important to have a coach, you know, CPA transition consultant, a group purchasing organization consultant that can look at these things and say, hey, here is a better plan for you. Yep. And I think you mentioned consultants and clearly there's business consultants like the Kane Waters and the NDP and the EDA, but there's also practice management consultants. And it's a area you have, you need to be careful about, right? Like not every consultant is a good consultant, but if you do have areas of your practice that can increase, right? With case conversion, if we're ortho or 
phone skills or just how do we communicate treatment plans and kind of get that patient buy-in, insurance reimbursement, kind of negotiating those rates, all of those pieces that kind of help rethink what we've always done and advertising, right? Like, are we tracking how that advertising is working, right? Just because we're spending what we should spend doesn't mean it's actually working and resulting in, in kind of what it should from a new patient flow. So just really taking a step back and looking at your practice from a different perspective and saying, just because we've always done this doesn't mean anything. Like walk me through what a new patient does when they come through my door, act like I'm a new patient, treat me, experience it from a different perspective. I think that you can kind of just make your practice better overall and then clearly maximize the value from this transition standpoint and the profitability. Okay, so these are all short-term things, things that you can spend a few weeks, a few months kind of calling through, shopping some providers and kind of making that that value increase. What if I am listening to this series, this part of the series, and I say, hey, I'm not ready yet, right? I'm on a growth curve, I'm growing, but I know based on me, based on where I am, that this is something that I am going to be interested in in the future, right? So I'm longer term out, let's say four or five years, what do I change? What are some out-of-the-box changes that I can do to mitigate risk or to prepare for this kind of ultimate transition? And Brett, I want to start with you here. Yeah. So all of these changes that can help your practice, you don't need to sell your practice to do this stuff. There's really no downside to running a better, more profitable practice, whether you buy it, whether you sell it, whether you keep it, it doesn't really matter. And you know, we talk about those short-term fixes. You know, if we have a conversation from the beginning of our first conversation to the close date, even if you're totally ready, that's still going to be about a six month process. So there's time in there to make your practice more efficient, make your practice more profitable just in that small amount of time between when we first talk to when you close. For those of you who are in the longer term kind of timeline, you know, like, you know I want to run this practice for a couple more years. I see some big growth, all these things. This is all about risk. And it's all about risk mitigation. How your value is determined by the buyer is about the risk. So the more risk you can reduce for the buyer, the more valuable your practice becomes. So just put yourself in the shoes of the buyer like we talked about before. Or if you had already bought a practice, if you bought into a practice, try and remember the things that gave you pause when you were in that buying process. You're concerned that the senior doc is going to slow down or, or go away. You're concerned that you know they're going to undermine your processes. You're, you have all these different concerns. And the more of those concerns that you can alleviate makes you more valuable to the buyer, just like it was when you bought into somebody else's practice. The first thing that always comes up with these dental practices and in in a lot of healthcare in general is this concept of key man risk. Key man risk is basically the idea that if the doctor leaves, the business falls apart. And so how much of that is true in your practice? If you were to leave your practice, does the business completely fall apart? Obviously, I understand that if you were to get up and leave your practice tomorrow, there would be some pretty negative consequences there. But when I'm buying a practice, when a DSO is buying a practice or any business for that matter, if I give you $3 million for your practice and then you get the check and you wake up the next day and say, you know what, I don't don't really feel like going to work. And you own all of the customer relationships and the patient relationships. You own all of the vendor relationships and you own all of the employee relationships, and you decide not to show up, what did I just buy? And so that's what we call key man risk. So alleviating the key man risk. How do we alleviate this key man risk of where I'm so valuable in this practice that this practice slash business doesn't work without me? This comes up a lot. So how do we alleviate that? We do it with, like what Charles talked about before, with associates. In some cases, so longer-term play, 
can you get an associate in there that can work and that would be excited to work for the future partner as you kind of transition out of the practice? If you have a one doctor practice, I don't recommend bringing in two doctors. Uh, that's absolutely not what I'm saying. But if you have more work than you, then you probably know what to do with. Or if you have, if your practice is on the growth curve, you can be aggressive with associates to help them kind of offset some of this key man risk idea. So there's someone in the practice producing, even if you're not. And so if you're the entire business, you do all the case presentations, all the production, all the sales, all the marketing, you even clean the bathrooms. There's a lot of key man risk in that practice and associates can do that. The other thing that can alleviate that is processes, processes and programs and systems inside the practice where every decision is not made by you on the fly as the doctor, as the owner. Are there systems set up where the practice can kind of run without you in some cases? Um, does hygiene need your approval on every time they have to take two or three steps in one direction. You know, what are the systems in place? What are the corporate policies in place? These are businesses. These are multi-million dollar businesses. And I think you need to start thinking of them that way every day when you're in that practice. If I were to leave, how does this practice behave? And how can I set that up to behave better when I'm gone? So key man risk is kind of the big thing. I hope that makes some, some kind of sense. I think Charles had a, you had a thought on the key man risk side. I'm all about examples. So my example earlier about the Waco guy, I mean, that's key man risk right there. He did everything. He was the guy. He has gone through all of the curriculum, you know, from this group to that group. He teaches and lectures. I mean, that's key man risk. You know, the, the opposite is, hey, I've got four locations in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I have long-term associates in each of the locations, and I'm only there clinically one day a week, and I manage all of it. I've got a kind of a CFO type person that's in this thing just runs automatic. I mean, that is ideal for an investor because they can see that the key man risk in this example is actually really low. It's interesting to put yourself in that other person's shoes because, you know, the doctor themselves, when they run the whole thing, rather, they are the risk. If there's something happened to them that you have to know that, and that's why they need that commitment for you to be there. And so sometimes that long commitment they're asking for you're giving up a lot of cash, so you've got to have a financial plan that shows you that even if you give up five years of owner income down to associate income, that this still is a good financial decision for you. And it can be, I mean, it's counterintuitive to some, right? Because we work their whole life. I've talked to so many kind of more established, kind of nearing retirement or nearing transition age doctors who say, you know, like, I'm the name. People come to me. They want me, you know, like, and they're proud of that. And you should be. But that is not a good thing in this type of environment because we have to prove out that that is transferable. And so I've worked with practices that are, you know, he's super producer. So we, you know, that person who does more than kind of the average producer, and they have been able to show that associates have been able to come in and out right over time, and that that is transferable. Having no hygiene, which is also common in my experience and kind of seeing those doctors that are super doctor heavy and there's not as much hygiene because we don't care as much about hygiene. That's not what we clinically like doing. Like the big cases, kind of we like that piece. So we've kind of neglected kind of keeping up that hygiene piece. A good solid hygiene practice kind of mitigates some risk too from a what can we keep this going because that staff's going to be there. So I absolutely think that kind of shifting your mindset of Yes, I am the name and I can still do that, but I have to prove out that this is transferable is going to be the way to mitigate kind of what you guys have been talking about. So completely agree. Hiring a team, I think, is another kind of concept here. If you're kind of far out and we kind of hit on this multiple times, but I kind of feel like it's important enough to say for a second or third time, 
if you are three, four years out and you are listening to this and there are pieces of this that maybe you don't have a plan or you're not sure how exactly to do it, hiring the Cane Waters to clean your financials and make sure you're ready, hiring the EDAs to help you have some profitability and clean up and find all that low-hanging fruit that the buyer is going to find anyway, hiring someone to do what you cannot do or do not have time to do or do not have interest in doing is critical. If you know transition is in your future, but it's not quite here yet, that's okay. NDP is here to help listen to your goals and tell you, is what you're thinking reasonable or is it not? Hiring a team. I will say it 500 more times because that is so important to let you do what you do best and then have a team that can kind of help support you on maybe what isn't your strong suit or isn't something you care to put as much focus on. Brett, you had something? Yes. I can just hear the people on the podcast saying, well, I'm supposed to reduce my overhead, but now you're telling me to hire a bunch of people. And so, which hiring people is going to increase my overhead. And so this hiring a team concept, let's just be clear what, what we're talking about. Like these are people who understand the process and understand how to get you to where your goals are that have your best interest at heart. And so say you pay, you hire all these consultants and yeah, the consultants don't work for free. And so like, oh, that's going to raise my overhead. Well, here's the little fact behind this. If you have a consultancy fee this year and then you sell your practice this year, that consultancy fee is not going to go against your EBITDA in terms of the value of your practice because it's a one-time expense that is not going to be recurring after you sell your practice. And so basically, if there's a consultant fee of $50,000 this year and a buyer purchases your practice, they're going to add back that $50,000 expense because they know it's non-recurring. So it doesn't really cost you money. It's not going to lower the value of your practice. Hopefully, the consultant raises your revenue, reduces your expenses, and then also that consultant fee it gets removed from those expenses because they're not recurring moving forward. So, And remember that the EBITDA, right, that we talked about early on and that after doctor comp EBITDA is not just after owner doc EBITDA, right? It's after we've paid the doctors to do the work, right? So it's whether it's you only doing the work or you and an associate and that's transferable, it's a certain amount of doctor production that has to be covered. And so even in a private sale, right, if that's the route you decide to go, that associate comp is not going to hurt you from a value perspective. You know, it, it'll lower your cash flow. So you got to make sure your plan makes sense to have that person added and you can afford to have that person and you can afford to shift that production. But if your financial plan is set and you are trying to just do this key man risk mitigation, then those things can help. Charles? No, just first of all, I've enjoyed this one. Not that I enjoyed the first two, but I just thought this was just really, really fun. Again, I, I, we've said this multiple times on 100 plus thousand plays of podcasts is we're not promoting hey, just go sell you know, your business to, to private equity and DSO. It's just this happens to be a conversation every doctor has. And it's so important that you have an education to where you are so that you can make this decision wisely. And like Brett said, you know, consultants, and I think practice management consultants, they're expensive. You can $30,000, dollars $50,000. Mean, I don't think, you know, your consulting fee, you know, Brad of $1,300, the fee, whatever it is for the annual membership to become an EDA member is expensive when you save people tens of thousands. I don't think that Cane Waters fee of, you know, $10,000 when it saves people $30,000, dollars $50,000 tax, you know, is a bad investment. I don't think that going through the NDP platform and paying X thousands of fee to clean up your financials to even say, does this make sense or not? You're selling your life's work. I mean, these are investments selfishly on our side. But we do recognize there are times that you need to hire these outside consultants that uh, but we want to measure. I mean, I've got no problem spending 30, but I want to make sure that, that consultant has a track record and some type of guarantee that they're offering that they will 
move the top line. And they will, in this example, increase you know profitability. If they have that confidence in looking at your practice, awesome. If they don't and they don't have a long tracker of success, then we, we need to find somebody else that does. Yep, 100%. Brett, anything on that? Yeah, I mean, these are investments in your practice. And if you're not willing to invest in your practice, then that's fine. But it kind of tells us a little bit about kind of your goals. And, you know, to really clarify on these investments in your practice, I am not promoting hiring three associates into a one doctor practice. If you have no additional patients and no additional production that you can find, the processes matter. The efficiencies matter. The consultants matter even more. You just you don't need to always have an associate if, if you have a nine hundred thousand dollar practice, but you still need process, you still need systems, and you still need a, a team of people around you to help you do that. And most of the consultants that we work with, us or otherwise, are going to be worth a heck of a lot more than their fee costs you, and then also that fee is going to get added back to your practice value anyway. I know we will have this conversation again and again and again and again. A very hot topic and one, but I agree. I think the education around this topic, making sure expectations are in alignment with kind of what reality is, is very important. The 15-time multiple that your friend of a friend got is something that we hear daily. The fear tactics, the all of those pieces are kind of something that we're just trying to combat here. So I have so much appreciated both of your time today. And to listeners, quick note, if you didn't notice, we released the final part to this series, part four, get the deal done. That has also been released where we're going to discuss how to negotiate and what to do and what to know once you find a buyer, once you've done the work that these last three parts talk about. Getting the offer isn't the hardest part, little teaser there. So listen into that. And also remember that we are here to help you. We're happy to connect with you before you're ready to pull the trigger on initiating this important process. In fact, as you saw today, there are so many steps that you can do to get ready for a transition personally, professionally, whatever you need, our organization is here to help you. So lots of resources at your fingertips. Click the contact us button in the podcast summary here and let us know what you need. So that's it for today. Listen in folks to part four. We'll be with you shortly. And if you're new here, follow Transition Talk wherever you listen to your podcast and like us and leave us a review. Thanks for listening. And thank you both for your time. Talk soon, friends. Thanks, guys.